What's going on, family? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors at Renaissance. Welcome again to our online service. Now, I miss you all very, very deeply, but I am still grateful that we can connect virtually. Uh, before we get into the message for today, let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are separated from each other, but we are together with you. Lord, I pray that right now you would meet us and you would speak to us and you would connect us to each other and also to you in this moment through your words. And we ask this through Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. So about five years ago, I went on a trip to Guatemala and it was an amazing trip. We spent some time in Guatemala City, had some great food and some great vibes. But the purpose of the trip was actually to go to a small remote village called Huehue Tenango. I practiced that pronunciation like 10 times. Uh, I went with an organization called Food for the Hungry, and Food for the Hungry does exactly what their organizational name says they do. They give food to the hungry. Now, more than just giving a handout, uh, they seek to empower really local leadership to make healthy, nutritious decisions. They seek to boost the local economy so that they're not saviors flying in from the outside trying to save uh, some other people. But it's a really great organization. And they took us to Huehuetenango to show us, a, a bunch of pastors, a success story. A success story of a town that had gone from having poor nutrition to having really good health and nutrition for everyone involved. But before Food for the Hungry got there, there was this really weird and negative phenomenon that was going on. Now in Huehuetenango, their number one export is coffee and they have some absolutely delicious coffee uh, there. And what they realized that they were doing was, since they didn't have a lot of food, when they uh, would notice that their kids were hungry, they would put coffee in a bottle for their kids. So quite literally, before the organization got there, they were giving two-year-olds coffee for breakfast. Now my kids are turnt with no coffee, so I could only imagine how turnt these kids were. Now the reason they were doing this is they noticed that the children, they weren't really hungry when they got the warm coffee in the bottle. So what they thought was that since they're not feeling the hunger pains, then they're actually being satisfied. Now, if you know anything about nutrition, you know that what people need is not just to feel full, they need to be satisfied, but they need to be satisfied with some, with some substance. Now, all of these children in this village, they started to notice that they were having all of these developmental issues. And it's here's, here's why they were having all these developmental issues. It's because even though they were satisfied and that they would stop crying because they got coffee, it was a satisfaction without substance. Now, I want to say that again. And preachers love saying, watch this. So watch this. It was a satisfaction without substance. They thought that since it soothed their appetites, that that was what they needed to live well. But not everything that soothes you can sustain you. Now, what is true physically is also true spiritually. Not everything that soothes you, that makes you feel full, actually can truly satisfy you. Even the things that we turn to temporarily many times to make us feel valuable, significant, to feel alive, a lot of times it's just like those two-year-olds putting coffee in a bottle, it gives us the sensation of fullness, but not the satisfaction of nutrition. Now, this is very important uh, because we are wrapping up this letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Philippians. And today we are talking about something called contentment. And many of you have heard uh, 
this passage that we're going to read today. And sometimes you've read it and this concept, this word almost just makes you angry because in a lot of ways it's been preached from, from really bad angles before that we, we misunderstand what it truly is. And here's what um, the gist of what this is, what we're talking about today. We're not just talking about you feeling full. We're talking about you having a state of satisfaction and contentment with substance, something that actually nourishes and fills you, not just makes you feel full. So I want to read this scripture for today um, that uh, will help orient us around this conversation that we're having about contentment and not just any old contentment, but truly being satisfied with substance. And here's uh, the scripture that comes to us in Philippians 4. Paul is talking. He says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little and I know how to make it and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, Paul says some very, very interesting things here that I want to make sure that we, we pick up on. But here's the overarching theme that Paul wants us to notice. Here's the theme. Your level of contentment has nothing to do with your circumstances. Right now, that daydream that you're having about if this were to change and I would be content, Paul is saying, yo, pump the brakes. Your level of contentment has absolutely nothing to do with your circumstances. He says, when I had nothing, I was content. When I had a lot, I was content. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that you can get everything you have ever dreamed of and still be discontent. And right now, you cannot have what you're dreaming of and still be content. What he's trying to do is he's, pastor, he's trying to pastor us through and see the inner work that God wants to do in our lives that we would develop contentment. Now more than ever, what this world needs to see are followers of Jesus who have this inner state of contentment inside of themselves. Now, we talked about Paul a lot and we talked about his words, and uh, I want to make sure that we're grounded in exactly where, where Paul is as he writes us these words. Paul is locked up and he doesn't know when he's going to get out, if he's going to get out, and Paul would eventually be executed. So Paul, when he's talking about learning contentment, he's not pretending everything is gravy. He's not dismissing the hardship of his realities, and true contentment is not dismissing hardships. At the same time, true contentment is also not having any ambition. One of the things that makes people roll their eyes is they think that contentment is not having any ambition. So they think that in order to be content, they need to sit around in a potato sack as a monk and have no desires at all. That is not contentment, that's starvation. Paul was one of the most ambitious people in all of scripture. He wrote over half of the New Testament. He planted more churches than anyone. Paul was full of ambition. Ambition and contentment, or ambition is, uh, being content is not having no ambition. It's quite the opposite. So what is contentment? It's not not having ambition. It's not dismissing the hardship of our lives and the realities. Uh, contentment is something much bigger than that. Here's what contentment is. And I'm stealing this definition from my brother, Rich Velotis at New Life Fellowship in Queens, one of the dopest dudes and greatest preachers in New York City right now. Here's what he says contentment is. Contentment is living free from the lie that having more of something 
makes you something more. I'll say that again. Contentment is living free from the lie that having more of something makes you something more. So it's not that you shouldn't want a nice apartment. It's being free of the lie that having a, a nice apartment makes you something more. It's not that you shouldn't want to grow in your career. It's being free of the lie that you growing in your career makes you something more valuable. It's not that you shouldn't want a good relationship. It's living free of the lie that this relationship makes you something more. Now, just by way of confession personally, uh, based on that definition, that contentment is living free of the lie that having something more makes me something more. I have spent the majority of my life wrestling with contentment. As a matter of fact, I'm an expert on discontentment because in my brain, I've spent too much of my life, still in the present, wrestling with this notion that if I were to have this, then I would be something more. Now, what Paul is talking about, he's saying he has learned it, and I, by God's grace, I am learning this, so we're all travelers on the same journey together. Now, generally, there are three areas that we would struggle with uh, with regard to contentment. If you have a pulse, you probably struggle with at least one of these. Uh, the first one is material. Now, material is pretty obvious. Uh, it's having and wanting more things, and a lot of times, Americans, we just have this this upgrade addiction, right? So we have a perfectly good phone that works perfectly fine. And after a year or so, we'll trade in our perfectly good phone for a new phone that does basically the same thing. It just looks a little bit better and a little shinier. Now, what, what's behind that? Deep down inside, we're always looking to, to upgrade and never before have we had more as a people and still want so much more. So material discontentment is something that a lot of people struggle with. Uh, but the second one is not easy to brush away or certainly not as easy to brush away as material stuff. And many of us would say, even if we felt discontent in our paychecks or our apartments or whatever, that we can dismiss that still pretty easily. But the second one is much more tied to how we see ourselves. And the second form of discontentment many of us struggle with is relational. Relational discontentment can come in the form of you just don't have the relationship with certain people that you want and that you wish you had. So maybe it's your parents. And maybe when other people are posting about this warm and tight relationship with their, with their parents, you just feel like, man, something must be wrong with me because I just don't have that. And certainly for those of you who, who, who your parents have passed away, there may be some of that aching inside of you that says, who am I if I don't have them? There's just this, this void. For some of you watching, you've your entire life, you dreamed of being a parent. And that's been an, an ambition and a, and a goal of yours since you can remember. And you wanted to be a mom or a dad, and you just don't have that for whatever reason. Now, relationships are good, and being a parent is good. What gets us into trouble and what gets us uh, in, in the position that Paul is talking to us about now is not saying you shouldn't want a relationship, not saying that you shouldn't want to be a mom or a dad, it's this lie that plays in the back of our head that says, unless I have this, then I'm really insignificant and I don't matter. Who am I if I don't have that? Now, for others of you, it's not just um, parents or wanting to be uh, or a, relation, a better relationship with your parents or wanting to be a parent. For many of you, it's also just a, a romantic relationship. And the majority of our congregation is single and majority of our congregation is between 20 and 40. And it's a hot topic on a lot of people's minds. 
And I realize how easy it is for me to talk about relationships and how you don't need a relationship to find contentment. And I got this big old wedding ring on my finger. But there is a pernicious and dangerous lie that harms us when we believe that unless we have a relationship, then we're something less. Now, I would have told you the same thing the day after my late wife passed away. Years ago, uh, when my late wife passed away, I had a friend who I, I met about a month before everything went down. And we had a peculiar, uh, but also very tight-knit relationship because we met through some friends and his wife also was dying of cancer at the same time. And we were about the same age and his wife died of cancer about three days before Danielle died of cancer. And um, right after our spouses passed away, we both were absolutely devastated. I've never been more devastated in my entire life. Uh, I remember going days on end. I wouldn't even get out of bed. I would just cry myself to sleep at night and then wake up and spend the whole day doing the same thing over and over and over again. So absolutely devastated. But I remember talking to him and he really had just lost hope for going on. And we were talking one day and he said, I don't know who I am without her. And I said, well, you were the same person you were before you met her, that although it's amazing to have had that relationship, your life cannot be defined as having value only within a relationship. And his life really crumbled as a result. He turned to alcoholism. He lost his job. He really, really struggled because he was living with the assumption that I am nothing. I am less because I don't have this person. Now, it's good to feel the pains of not being in the place that you want to be in. But it's really dangerous when we believe this lie that says we are less because we don't have these relationships. Now, in our lives, whether it's material, relational, or circumstantial, uh, which is that my circumstances of life and during this Rona, none of us have the circumstances that we want, that my circumstances are not what I want them to be. And since I don't have the circumstances, since I don't have the, the house or the apartment or the backyard or whatever it is, a paycheck, that I am somehow less as a result. And contentment is living free of the lie that having more of something makes you something more. Now, what complicates this and makes this so difficult so many times is a lot of times we would have been content and happy where we are until we noticed what someone else had. Comparison in many cases is the thief of joy and settledness. Now, I was fine with my kids being crazy until I met another parent whose kids were well-behaved. I was fine with uh, my apartment until I met someone else who has an apartment with outdoor space. Comparison is, has that way of exposing something inside of us that we didn't even know existed. But there's another part of, uh, of our lives that makes it so difficult to be content. And deep down inside, you and I think that we know better. You won't admit it. I won't admit it. Deep down inside, you think that if you were on the throne of God's kingdom, you would do things better than what God is doing. That your recipe for how life should go, for how your life should go, is better than what God is doing. Many times you feel like God is taking a nap or he's binging on a Netflix special because you don't know what he's doing. Things just don't seem to be lining up. Oftentimes I'm reminded to look back on scripture and see how God orchestrates all things out. And the life of Joseph is an amazing example that his life for so many years was so tumultuous and so many things were going on in his life. And at the end of it, he can say, I saw that God was working all of these things out, not just for my good, but also for his glory. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. So even though sometimes it's comparison that gets us in trouble and it makes us uh, discontent, 
or even though if it's sometimes you and I think we know better and it makes us discontent. Uh, I want us to point our attention back towards these words in scripture so hopefully we can find contentment to really truly be free of this lie that having something more, whether it's material, relational, or circumstantial, makes us something more. So I want to turn back to the scripture in Philippians uh, Philippians 4, and here's what uh, Paul says. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again, you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. And he's talking about the Philippian church blessing him financially. And he says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with a little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, Paul is talking to this church in Philippi, and he's saying, listen, y'all, I know what it's like to eat at the steakhouse where the bill is $500, and I also know what it means to suffer through Applebee's. I have been to both polar extremes of life, and whether well-fed or hungry, I can find contentment in Christ. Now, I say that half-heartedly because I don't like Applebee's, and I say that jokingly, but in all seriousness, Paul is saying, I know what it feels like to feel like life is, is passing me by, right? So Paul is, again, writing this from prison, and his life's ambition was to go out and plant churches, and that's not happening right now. His life's ambition and mission is not happening, and he's saying, I know what it feels like to have this feeling that your life is passing you by. And I know what it feels like to be on the top of the mountain. And in both of these circumstances, I have learned what it means to be content in the good and in the challenge to be free of this pernicious, dangerous, deadly lie that having more of these things, whatever it is, will make me something more. His identity, his, self of, his sense of self was detached from his material, relational, and circumstances uh, things that were going on in his life. So Paul continues, and he's telling us that the first thing I want to point out comes in verse 11, where Paul says, I have learned. Now, Americans struggle with this concept of what does it mean to learn? We struggle because we think that information means knowledge, or the fact that we know something because we Googled it means that we have actually learned it. But never before have we had more information at our fingertips and we've been as clueless as we are now. Uh, I remember years ago, uh, I had this old hoopty, a 1993 Acura Vigor. There's a reason that they discontinued that car. It had so many issues, but I loved that car and uh, I didn't want to get rid of it. So every time it had a problem, I would try to fix it. I was too cheap and too broke to go take it to the shop every single time. And one day there was a problem with the distributor. So I read the manual, how to replace this distributor. And a lot of us, when we think of learning, we think, oh, you read the manual, you learned how to do it, that's it. That was absolutely not it because when I first took the distributor apart, all I did was just make it worse. My first and second and third attempt in the driveway late at night uh, trying to fix this car really were so frustrating because I didn't know what I was doing. Eventually, the, the wires started to, to, uh, to go in the right places and I finally figured out and it clicked. But after days and days of attempting and failing, I finally learned how to change a 
distributor. Now, learning what Paul is talking about is similar to that. He's not just saying that you've read this fact in Philippians and now you know, you have learned. He's saying, no, you have to put this into practice in your life and you have to try. And it's probably going to be met with failure and mistakes over and over and over again. But eventually, if you keep at it, you can learn it. He learned it and you and I can learn it as well. Now, this is also really important for us to know, because a lot of times when we read scripture, we think that the people who are writing these books are just superheroes and they could do no wrong and they have no struggles. But the opposite is true. Paul is saying that I was not born with this. I was not born content. I had to learn it and you can learn it as well. Now, with contentment, I think we can learn it in one of two ways. The first way is pretty paradoxical how we learn contentment and we learn it through the dissatisfaction of the things that we thought were going to make us content. The great American poet by the name of Jim Carrey says it like this. Uh, he says, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that that's not the answer. When Jim Carrey was interviewed about fame and celebrity, he says this, I hope all of you get everything that your mind can ever daydream about. And then you will realize that none of those things could actually make you content. All of those things will fall short. Now, I know what a lot of y'all are thinking like, Lord, yes, teach me, this teach me how to be content by giving me everything I could have ever wanted and then putting those things in their right place. And eventually, Lord, I will, I will be content. But oftentimes that's not the way that God works. The second way we learn true contentment is painful, and it really does require some intentionality. And it's the process of uncovering our idols. Now, an idol is not a statue that's standing somewhere where you go in the corner and pray to it. An idol is something that we turn to to look for significance, meaning, and purpose in our lives. And here's the thing about idols. They always overpromise and under-deliver. For me, my idol is career success. And in my brain, if I reach this number, then Jordan will matter more. If I do a good job, if we get a building, if we navigate this double pandemic, um, then Jordan will be significant. If I do this really well, then I will matter more. And one of the challenges with this is that idols always overpromise and underdeliver. I remember one day having this metric in my brain, and I thought that when we got that, I would just feel so content and it happened, and that Sunday by 4 p.m., just like those kids who had coffee in the morning, they felt full for a second, but they were starving a couple minutes later. It was just empty. It satisfied for a hot second, but it truly wasn't something that truly nurtured and really satisfied me. Now, in my brain, I was believing something that was not true. I was believing that I will matter more when I have something more, and this is the lie that fuels discontentment. And the second thing we need to do is truly an intentional and painful process of asking ourselves, what am I really looking to for my delight? What am I really looking to for my security? What am I looking to for my significance? Here's a question I want you to look at this week and fill in this blank. When this happens, then I will be blank. So what is your this? When I get the apartment, when I get the job, when I get the relationship, when X, Y, Z happens, then I will be blank. And that's a great way for us to uncover and find out what the idols are in our lives. Now, Paul continues to go on and he's basically telling us that the way that we 
move forward and truly find contentment is not just through sheer willpower, it's through replacing it with something else. And here's what he says. I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he says, here is the secret of contentment. The secret sauce behind it is this. If you want to be content, you have to replace it with something. And Paul's something was a someone. It was Christ. And he says, I'm able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when you find this, when you replace it with the right thing, then you'll discover life. Now, as Paul continues in the scripture and he's pushing us to be free from this lie that having more of something makes us something more, um, I can feel it right now. A lot of you are watching and you're on your couch and you're rolling your eyes like, all right, all right. The preacher is saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And of course, he's going to tell me that I need to find my contentment in Jesus, but he don't know my life. He don't know my struggle. He doesn't know all the things that are going on in, in my life. And that's true. One, I don't know these things. But two, I would push back a little bit and say, you can't trust your own appetites. The fact that it doesn't thrill you that we can find true satisfaction and contentment in Jesus is because there's something about us that's broken. There's a story of a kid named Landry Jones uh, from, uh, from Iowa. And when he was 12 years old, he went to the hospital with this really weird thing that was going on in his body. He had lost a bunch of weight going down from about 105 pounds to 68 pounds. And he looked really uh, skinny and, and, and unhealthy. And his doctors found out that he had had an infection and the infection messed up his hypothalamus. And I got D's in biology, so I won't try to go too deep in scientific waters. But the hypothalamus is a region of the brain that controls thirst and hunger. And since that hypothalamus was damaged through the infection, he no longer felt hungry or thirsty. The very things that he needed to sustain him, he didn't want. Now, scripture tells us the same thing about us, that you and I are, have been infected by this thing called sin. David says, surely from birth, I've been conceived in sin. And that means that we're damaged. And as a result, we can't trust our own appetites. We can't trust our own desires in terms of what we truly need in our lives. Landry Jones didn't feel the need to ever drink any water or eat any food in his life. And if he would have trusted his appetites, he would have died. There's a scripture in Romans 3 that tells us this. It says, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And here's the scripture. Here's the, what it tells us about us. All of us have turned away. All of us have turned away the plate, the plate of Christ, the nourishment and, and the righteousness and all that God wants us to have. And you and I cannot trust our own appetites. Now, the second reason I think we roll our eyes about finding true contentment in Christ is because we just don't understand how value works. Now, everything in, in life has value because someone in power says that that thing is valuable. A couple of months ago, I was listening to a podcast about art. And in the podcast, they were talking about Van Gogh and these Van Gogh paintings. And one of these Van Gogh paintings sold for like $89 million. And to keep it all the way live, it doesn't look like anything my high school classmate, Adrian, who was nice with the pen, it doesn't look like anything he couldn't have drawn. And for $89 million, you need to Van Gogh somewhere with that because ain't nobody got 89 million for that. Now, 
It's valuable because someone in power, the art community and fine arts people, please don't, don't roast me on Twitter for, for saying that. I do appreciate Van Gogh and the arts. The reason it was valuable is because people in power said that it was valuable. Here's what Jesus says about you and about me. He says, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus pronounces a value on us. And the reason you and I have value, the reason we are something more is not because of anything material, it's not because of anything circumstantial, but it is based on something relational, relationship to God where God has told us we have value. Now this is true about Van Gogh and it's also true about our American currency. If you were to go on the street right now and see a $20 bill on the ground, you would risk getting that Rona just to pick this up. And it's just a piece of paper. It's no more intrinsically valuable than any other piece of paper lying around your house. But why does it have value? Because someone said, people in power have said that it has value. God is the ultimate power. And he says that you and I have value. And you and I need to find our value, our meaning, and our significance in him so that we're not looking to material or relational or other circumstantial things to make us feel like we are something more. We are who we are. We are valuable, not because of any of those things, but because of God. And through Christ, he has made us his children. And as his children, we have value. Now, not only do we have value because God tells us we have value, but along with God's pronouncement of, of us, for all of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we also have his promises to us. And I want to leave you with this promise that Paul ends his chapter with in Philippians. Philippians 4, 19 through 20. Uh, and I want you to cling to this this week. For all of the things, for all your heart's desires, Paul says this, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.